0: Hello everybody, thank you for joining us at the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan and as I say always, today with me is a friend uh, and a very interesting individual. He's not going to share his name because of the work that he's doing right now, so we're just going to call him E. Uh, he has over a decade experience in the security and risk sector, for the pri- in the private as well as uh, in the humanitarian sector. He's been to many, many countries, over 30 countries and dealt with very interesting and unsavory characters and done so very successfully. And we would love to hear his experience and, and the lessons learned from him today. E, thank you for joining
1: us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very happy to be with you and the and the people that listen.
0: So what I wanted to, what we always do is I ask you, can you give us uh, a bit of a description of where you started and, and, and how you got where you are today.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I, I never wanted to to be security. That that was never my dream. And <laughs> it, it was never my dream because, you know, the country I'm coming from, we don't have tradition on, you know, security sector. Basically, it's, it's very underdeveloped, let's say, uh, for the global standards. So when I was a child, I always wanted to be a journalist or something like that. I was extremely curious. And because I was extremely curious, that was, you know, my drive in terms of how to explore the world and etc. But because of different circumstances, I actually became initially, you know, I joined to the military and then from the military to the private security sector, because essentially it was similar with journalism. I could see what is happening around me and, you know, I could explore more different uncertainties that, uh, you know, that are there. So after I joined on the private security sector, which is the most interesting part, let's say, on the beginning of my career, I basically started traveling in different worlds, finding different cultures, you know, and and this was feeding more my hunger in in order to understand, you know, and, and learn more about the world around us. But this wasn't enough, you know, especially when you're armed, I understood that you're not very much connected with the society. You, do not, you have a limitation in terms of what you can, you can learn and what you can explore. And then I decided to join the humanitarian sector as uh, security. And, and, and that was the most interesting part until now. It's a very diverse, let, let's say, approach in terms of security risk management You speak a lot with people, you interact a lot with people and and this is what keeps me, you know, still interested in the sector. So in short, this is my background. I moved from wanting to be a journalist to military and then to private security and then humanitarian security sector.
0: Do you you still have ambitions to be a journalist?
1: No, not really. Uh, (laughs) I don't think I would be a good journalist (laughs) because... uh, I have a problem to focus. I think to be a good journalist, you need to be able to focus on the story that you want to produce. For me, I'm like from those guys that, you know, reading something or exploring something and then hearing something more interesting. I'm jumping there and then from there somewhere else and then somewhere else and somewhere else. And in the end, I have a full picture of something that could be like a tree, like, you know, a, a, a full analysis of a context, but it's not... It couldn't serve a story you know it it, it is something bigger than that for instance you know in uh, in a country that i was in the past let's say yemen i started exploring the tribal you know uh, analysis of of one particular location i found myself uh, exploring beyond that including the 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 relationships between tribes and external actors, such as Saudi Arabia or Emirates, and then the relationships between Saudi Arabia and Emirates, and then the relationships between Al-Qaeda and, um, you know, Islamic State. And then, the, rela- you know, and all this create a nice mixture of things. But, you know, if I was a journalist, I would be mm-hmm. really, really bad.
0: I think I think it overlaps. Um, I think you'll be a great journalist. But that's that's just because, you know, how I know you. I so, so I think, you know maybe this quest for what's interesting is also what drives journalists to maybe write good stories I think but uh,
1: it could, it I mean could I want case. to come
0: back on on Yemen because I, sorry go ahead
1: it, it, it could be the case I mean um, I think security professionals and journalists have a lot of similarities especially considering that they all try to go in places that human beings sometimes do not want to be there but because of their curiosity or because of their mandates, you know, they need to be there.
0: Let's talk a little bit about joining the uh, humanitarian industry. What was your experience yeah. like starting that and, and from coming from a security military background?
1: Yeah, so, so this is quite interesting. And to be honest, it was um, a very eye-opening, let's say, situation. And the reason why it was eye-opening is, you know, coming from the private security sector, you have a very conservative, let's say, security risk management approach many times, which, you know, when when you try to mitigate risks, most of the times you try to avoid them or you try to take, you know, extreme conditions, uh, extreme, con- to put extreme controls in place in order to mitigate them. But when I joined in the humanitarian sector initially, I did it because that was let's say, a natural progress in my career. So from the field, I actually had an offer to to be security lead in a country. And basically, having that chance, I thought that I know how to do security risk management. However, I understood very fast that the humanitarian security understands risk not necessarily as something negative. And crisis is not ne- necessarily something negative. You know, what I usually say is that, you know, business resilience, especially for the humanitarian sector, is very much interconnected and, and linked with uh, business development, something that is not very clear on the private sector. So when I joined to the humanitarian security, I, I think I saw myself becoming more complete, you know, on the security risk management um you know, sector in total, if I haven't done the private security in the past, I wouldn't be complete on what I'm doing today. But if I haven't done the humanitarian security, I can say that I wouldn't be complete either. You know, this diversity in terms of risk management and risk appetite, I think is, is, you know, fundamental on on where I am today and fundamental in terms of how I understand security risk management.
0: Can you give an example of a situation or a a conflict where the private sector could have learned from looking at risk and, mm-hmm. and and security as an opportunity.
1: Yeah, for instance, in in the current ongoing conflict in Ukraine, the, there is extreme um, need for companies that, let's say, working a lot working in in, on the energy sector that that's not the case you know many big players are not there because of of a risk averse type of approach while especially last winter if you remember you know russians were targeting critical infrastructure especially focusing on the energy side In, in contrast you know the humanitarian organizations are working in the front lines You know, there are organizations that are working as close as in uh, Kherson in, you know, block by block are analyzing where artillery is taking place and working two blocks, you know, later from that, you know. And even if we see, you know, the increase of of revenue of organizations, we are talking about an average increase between 15 to 20 percent increase of revenue annually. This is not happening in any other sector. And this is driven by crisis. You know many organizations, especially from the humanitarian uh, perspective you, you see them going first just after the military in post conflict post conflict or conflict locations. This is not happening on the private sector even even when it is about traveling in some cases you know you see that the private sector is quite conservative mm-hmm.
0: why Why do you think that
1: i I think many people are coming from with a background on the military or with a background from the you know security or police and etc they haven't really been in the field or if they have been in the field they have been in the field as i did in the past you know been armed been quite disconnected from the society i think this is this is one of the reasons that i, I it's quite obvious in, in in my eyes you know when i started my career in the humanitarian security sector i remember that i wasn't allowing or I was trying to block, you know, my colleagues to go to a detention center to, to provide humanitarian support. There were a lot of mitigation measures that could be taken, but they were not obvious in my eyes because I have never done that before. S- since then, you know, I, I negotiated, let's say, access in in areas where we, we needed to cross front lines in, in, in Yemen. Or I negotiated, you know, with uh, criminal groups that... We're doing carjacking in, in uh, Cameroon or in other locations. You know, something that is quite unspeakable for the private sector. But at the same time, it's quite part of the daily business life, you know, for the humanitarian sector.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Do you think that from a private sector perspective, just playing devil's
0: advocate here, there is maybe a, a reputational risk? component that they don't want to be involved in or li- uh, like liabilities that that they think are especially if it's a public company where they have stockholders to 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 think of do you think that plays a role in that in that decision taking and that supersedes maybe opportunities to do business
1: i'm not entirely sure to be honest because we need to see the data right for instance, in 2022, 444 aid workers were actually part of casualties across the globe. A- around, you know, 116 of them died. Private sector do not have similar numbers. And I-, I understand that, you know, there might be a concern in terms of reputation. But who defines this concern in the end of the day? I, I mean, f- from my perspective... You know, perception is more powerful than the reality, you know, especially when we talk about security risk management. Sometimes we we talk about integrating security risk management with other sectors, but in the end of the day, we do not see also communication component as part of the security risk management. You know, this is essentially something that is missing a lot in in the private sector. Do you have a solution for that? Or do you have ideas? Yeah, for for, for instance, you know... um, I think earlier this year, if I remember well, or late 22, if you remember, there were companies that have been impacted by fake uh, Twitter accounts. You know, some some of the biggest ones, I'm not sure if I can mention them, were Lillian Co or Martin and Lockheed that lost billions just because of uh, fake Twitter accounts that uh, started making statements, pretending that they're actually the official accounts as a result of what happened, uh, you know, in this uh, platform. Those companies were not prepared. And to be honest, no one was prepared about that. But th- there is a clear lesson learned in terms of how you can integrate, let's say, cybersecurity risk management and physical secure- and security risk management and communication departments. For instance, w- when we do in the humanitarian security sector um, an attempt to get access in a location, we try to integrate more than one department on that. We can have you know public statements that are targeted for particular stakeholders in a context. And and, and this requires a lot of analysis and and a lot of, you know, actor mapping, um, understanding, you know, in in a context. This is not, for instance, happening in the private sector. From my experience in the private sector, the main focus is on traditional security risk management approaches, you know, such as build doors build gates uh, build access control systems uh, build build systems that will you know um, allow you to have a safe base but not to develop your business I find that very interesting
0: because I think also that in the humanitarian sector there is this where the crises and, and conflicts are or the people affected by it is the goal right where I think companies often See that as an obstacle for business continuity, and I think also mentality needs to t- change. There needs to be training on on executive level on on how to understand these type of risks and not see them just as obstacles, even though it might sound a bit um, opportunistic, but see. The opportunities to not only continue your business where others would not, but increase your business. Do you think there is a space for humanitarian sector and the private sector to work closely together?
1: Firstly, I could agree more than you, right? Even if we if we see the ISO thirty one thousand, you know, the risk is the effect of uncertainty on objectives. So the objectives are driving what risk we can take and and what we define in risk in the end of the day. In in my view, I I think this has been somehow miscalculated in the private sector. Obviously, the humanitarian sector has a lot to learn about the private sector as well. You know, the private sector has invested a lot in compliance, has invested a lot on systems, has invested a lot on have you know, a sound policy in place in terms of security risk management. So it's not that the private sector needs to learn from the humanitarian security sector. There is a lot of space to learn from each other. And unfortunately, the, the, there are not a lot of forums that bring professionals from both sides to, to talk you know about their experiences, to talk about practices and etc. etc. You know, even the best practices that we see on security risk management usually are either for people that have a very theoretical background or people that are, are not diverse in terms of exposure. And, and that's not a problem from the private sector it's not it's also that you you don't see very often humanitarian security professionals talk and, and sometimes you know as happened also in the private sector those who are talking might not have the full picture of of what they should talk about if that makes sense mm-hmm.
0: awesome. there's an interesting conundrum because we are seeing for example in the cyber domain that there is a lot of inter uh, connectivity between Different types of organizations, maybe private or nonprofit organizations, and I think why that cannot be the case in the on the physical security side, or 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 even on reputational risk, and maybe you know it's 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 something that is happening slowly, and you know we we cannot see it, but you're closer to that than I am. What I what I want to ask you is because this is something that i find fascinating we we talked a lot about the private sector and i think also there's a lot of things that that can be learned from the private sector do you do you think that the humanitarian sector has lessons to learn from the private sector risk management and security approach
1: absolutely firstly you mentioned about the cybersecurity um, component this is something that the private sector itself have you know invested more than the humanitarian sector having invested historically right but but even when we talk about the physical security for instance you know the isomorphic learning type of approach that private sector especially oil and gas companies have invested a lot is something that is extremely underinvested on on the, on the humanitarian sector you know in the humanitarian sector for a long time you know it's, it's very unusual to see lesson learned from, from incidents that took place and then many organizations ending up you know in, in major crises. in the private sector this wouldn't happen you know beyond that there is stronger um, level of compliance there is also stronger level of accountability that the humanitarian sector for instance in some cases doesn't have in place you know as I said I, I feel complete security risk management not because I'm working now as humanitarian security but because I have worked on the private sector I I, I think one of, one of the elements that I would add in our conversation is that for people to to build further their capacity overall, they need to move. They need to move around and, and and not necessarily move around companies, but move around sectors. You know, the the more you expose yourself on security risk management, the more you expose yourself on different understanding of security risk management and different risk appetites. The more you are completing yourself, and you know. As you said, discussions already are are starting. There are forums that host both humanitarian security professionals and private security professionals or private intelligence, you know, professionals. That that wasn't the case before, and this is happening, you know, the last few years. So there there is a lot of space for improvement in both sides. So it's not one side better than the other one. I think both sides have gaps that the other side have have somehow already filled if that makes sense Mm -hmm.
0: yeah absolutely I mean you you opened a a bit of a door there for me because we we haven't talked about this that much where do you see the role of of intelligence not just from a a private sector such as us but also within humanitarian organizations to to better do their job and, and to help decision making
1: I mean, intelligence or geopolitical analysts, I think, are more um, important than ever, especially in, in the world we are living in right now, which is extremely fast-paced and, you know, becomes more and more polarized. So it's more difficult for organizations and companies to, to basically maneuver. See, for instance, in the last, you know, triggered by the last war in um, Israel and uh, and Gaza, you know, many, many companies are facing reputational risks because they haven't done proper analysis in terms of how the world see their engagement, you know, within this war. Many organizations also, humanitarian organizations face the same, the same exact problem. Many organizations have been accused that um, did not speak as loud as they're speaking in other crises. And that's because of lack of investment on, on geopolitical analysis. However, many NGOs now are actually have what they call crisis analysis teams Th- that are doing, you know, intelligence analysis on geopolitical level in terms of upcoming crises that may take place, you know, within the next year or so. And, and that helps a lot. Investment of resources that helps a lot in terms of um, in investment on uh, humanitarian efforts, advocacy, policy, and etc. etc. So there is investment both in the private sector and the humanitarian sector towards this direction. But this investment could be faster than it is right now, if that makes sense.
0: I have experienced in my career a bit of a apprehension from and in so, in a lot of cases, rightly so, from the humanitarian sector, to even discuss the topic of intelligence, because it can in uh, or it's it's seen as a as a as a as problematic because in a lot of countries, humanitarian professionals are seen as oh yeah they're from an intelligence uh, service or you know security service pretending to, to help us. So I understand that there is a bit of an apprehension. That may be a difficult question, but I don't know if that's still the case today, but how do you see overcoming that that obstacle? Because that's something we've seen, we've tried to work with humanitarian. I mean, you're a bit of an exception, but other organizations where we see that there is a, uh,
1: an, a
0: bit of an apprehension, just to talk about the word intelligence.
1: Well, I think... That's a complicated question and has to do about context a lot. And it has to do a lot about context because even the word security is something that many NGOs are not using. You know, in my career as humanitarian security, I had so many titles, I cannot remember them. And the reason behind that is because, you know, depending on the context, it, it was not necessarily easy for me to get access in a country with the title security. If I had intelligence, for instance, in my title, that would be impossible. Because it's intelligence for who? Similarly, you know, is in the private sector. You know, many companies are not using the, the title of intelligence. You know, there is a, a lot of effort for, for colleagues, you know, out there that have invested a lot of personal effort and time uh, in order to, to change that, even in the private sector. And the private sector change, let's say, it's it's quite easier than the humanitarian. The reason is easier is because, for instance, you know, as, my, as part of my job as security professional for the humanitarian sector, I needed many times to um, negotiate or communicate or have meetings with different entities. Either those are governmental actors, a general, for instance, from a, from a military function or a militant, militant leader or a warlord or someone that, you know, some entities will call terrorists and etc. cetera, et cetera. And, and that's a fundamental part of security risk management. You know, you cannot do security risk management, especially if you want to be in the very um, front line of, of a conflict or um, on a very difficult to go or hard to reach, as we call it the, in the humanitarian security sector location, without the communicating and negotiating with, with all the entities. So having in, in your title something about intelligence, it, it brings a bit of, you know, stress to people, and and that's that's not only on the humanitarian, uh, I think it has, it, it, it needs to have an education as a society in terms of what intelligence means. You know, many people connect intelligence with the uh, CIA, or with the uh, dark ops, or with whatever you you want to call it, so th- there, there are a lot of myths, drama, and a lot of... Um, you know, hunger for people to, to pretend that they are someone that they are not. You, we, we should not forget that there are also all these people on, on the social media, that they are pretending that they are something that they are not as well. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a complicated situation, right?
0: <laughs> it is, it is. And, and, I, and I also, uh, this is a conversation I, I had uh, with my wife about this, which is, I don't know why intelligence professionals always are the bad guys. In movies and TV, it doesn't really help, you know. In in popular culture, that it's seen as something dark and and mysterious, and really, I mean, there are parts of it, but in actuality, daily, it's pretty mundane, you know. So it's a it's a it's a pretty mundane endeavor, um, and very much like you know what a journalist does. So yeah, exactly. As you, and, yeah. Even the
1: security professionals, you know, in in many cases are doing intelligence. You know, you cannot do a context analysis, you cannot do a security risk analysis without collection of information or intelligence and analysis of them. You know, it's something that exists more or less, it's as old as security risk management, but people do not want to call it intelligence.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it's it does a disservice to not just the work that they're doing, but it does a disservice to people that want to, do that type of work right so a lot of young people and it's one of the reasons why i set up this podcast is to demystify these type of roles because intelligence is everywhere but it's not it's not called that and then young people ask me like well you know i want to work in intelligence but do i have to go to government right no there's many other paths that you can take the problem is yeah but they don't advertise that
1: and there, there are a lot of myths beyond that, right? Yeah. In, even yeah. in terms of what could be your nationality so as to get in this sector or what could be, you know, your background or what studies you need to do. You know, I, I think there are a lot of myths out there which, you know, take away a lot of potential talents from the industry and create a lot of, you know, trigger even further mystery and potentially, you know, negative effects for the whole sector. But as you said, intelligence is, you know, everywhere. Even when you open, you know, your social media and wants to understand why a protest is taking place uh, nearby your house, this is open source intelligence. It, it's not any different than what many of us are doing as part of our professional life.
0: Yeah. No, I, I fully agree with you. And I think in, this is one of the reasons why we, you know, we, we set up a school, an intelligence school, where we can teach everybody from any walk of life that hey, you don't have to be. It's not James Bond, right? Uh, Please Jason don't say Borg. that. Uh, <laughs> there are people that they uh, believe that I am James Bond or whatever. And, uh, you, you destroy my myth. <laughs> well, luckily they don't. They don't know who you are, right? So that 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 helps that a little bit. But I think this is a very important discussion to 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 get into and and to to delve into a bit deeper because this is what I, I found fascinating because I've spoken to, to colleagues of yours where they were like look, looking maybe at a, uh, at a region or a country or, or an area and the level of knowledge and insight that they held was fascinating to me because I know that there are organizations, maybe government even, that do not have that level of insight and knowledge. So, so I definitely think that, you know, making, I think OSINT has done a good job of bridging that gap and have made it, you know, more acceptable. I think it's also important to understand that just finding information and not analyzing it and, and then reporting on it is not intelligence, it's just information gathering. I keep saying this, and and I know a lot of OSINT professionals don't like sometimes me saying this, but you know I have to. I'm not trying to gatekeep, but I have to make sure to 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 make clear what intelligence is and what it's not. But from your perspective, how has the rise of OSINT and OSINT professionals impacted your industry?
1: I, I think. Um we are living in an in an era that is a game change in terms of security risk management in total and, and this is driven you know by various factors including you know the the osint you know that that out there available you know that you learn things that traditionally you wouldn't learn for weeks sometimes you learn things faster than the government that is getting impacted you know for for instance when the war in ukraine started I remember that um, I had in my laptop identified um, street cameras and, um, that were close to the borders. And those were in live stream. And because I was expecting the war to happen around after 20th of February, I had that in live stream on my home all the time because I was thinking that if that happened, then certainly it's going to be a country that I will be sent in order to you know establish operations. And I remember watching in live stream, you know, the the Russian um, military crossing the borders. Maybe I was able to see that faster than the government itself. Maybe they, and I'm not saying that in in a way to promote on what OSIT can do. I'm saying that on the way that, you know, the information that are out there available is, there are so many and so uncontrollable that, changing the game totally, and changing the game in a lot of different factors. Not only for the security professionals, but also for the responses of governments, the responses of, you know, authorities in in terms of particular events. You know, now they have more pressure to react in a faster manner than they had before. You know, in the past, they needed to spend time, the, the news could be potentially controlled. Now they don't have this luxury anymore. They need to take, you know, decision on the spot, which sometimes are not necessarily good ones for this particular reason. You know, for instance, if you remember in in Sudan, I think it was July or August 2019, I don't remember the exact month, it was the first, you know, livestream massacre in the history of humans. That have never happened before. And we we are talking about, you know, um, OCDs that are available to everyone, including children, including, you know, professionals, including anyone out there. So I think there is a game-changing uh, period for, for for our sector for sure and there is a game changing in terms of h- how good we can be able to analyze and understand things um, considering that the world is faster um, in, in the pace than before.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to to ha- definitely highlight the importance of OSINT and the access to information has changed uh, the world forever. And none much more than what's now for example happening in in Gaza uh, and is, uh, there is war with israel and and, and, uh, and Hamas and what I find interesting and this I would like to hear your opinion on this because that the the open source information domain has become a, a battle in itself has become a war in itself how do humanitarian organizations navigate you know these especially if they are not maybe on the ground or they are not at locations or it's inaccessible to them how do they navigate this new information domain?
1: I think this is where um, humanitarian um, organization can learn from the private security sector because they don't invest a lot on that they have not invested sorry, a lot on that for instance you, you know, in the very beginning of the war in Ukraine, I can give that as an example, I remember that we were trying to understand, you know, where, you know, refugees are going. And and we use, you know, I, I used Google Maps because they saw the traffic. You know, it was as simple as that, you know. This is not something that many other professionals from, from my sector did. But this is something that, you know, collection of open source intelligence is something that um, the private sector, in, in many fronts, have invested more than the, than the humanitarian security sector, which is more dependent on the individual approaches and the individual investment, on on um, you know outside of the box thinking. But in the war in Gaza that you mentioned, you know Gaza is now the deadliest war zone for civilians globally, based on figures that the UN is saying. And it's really important to mention that in, in wars like Gaza, where communications have severely disrupted by one of the warring parties you cannot have information about what is going on there and you cannot have information in terms of how you can mitigate risks or what are the risks you are facing but i I want to say one more thing again from the example from from ukraine the level of information that were coming out of ukraine during the very early stages of the war created a false sense of what is going on there you know, leading many security uh, humanitarian security professionals in a more conservative type of approach, while in fact, for instance, the war was mainly focused on the southern and the eastern fronts, and the rest of the country was relatively safe. As safe can be, obviously, you know, a, a country at war. That wasn't what people could understand by by uh, checking the media and the social media. So it, it is a double-edged sword. Um, if you understand what I'm trying to say, which either when you have lack of information on what is going on in Gaza, there is a possibility, or what is happening in Sudan, for instance, in Darfur, where, you know, there might be an extreme violation of human rights and extreme, you know, violence. Um, or in the other side, where you have, you know, extreme amount of information coming out there, in both cases, there's no balance. You know, it's it, I, I think... We are, in, we are in a very unbalanced, let's say, a, environment at the moment. And the era of, that we are living is one of the most complex, I think, security professionals needed to, to navigate ever in the history of security risk management. I agree with you.
0: And uh, I think, as an intelligence professional, that the tools that we use in intelligence, uh, mainly intelligence analysis, looking at you know how do you how do you analyze information where there there's, a, there's not much information or there is an overload of of false or, or misdirection and misinformation there there are tools uh, such as structured analytic techniques to I'm um, obviously they're not going to solve all your problems but they help you at least combat your cognitive biases which is incredible obstacle to overcome in the world we live in today, particularly since social media is shaping our worldview uh, more and more each day. And critical thinking skills are not uh, divided equally, let's say that, and, and which is why I think still humanity studies are important because we have to understand how we think and why we think the things that we think, not to get into much of a philosophical debate. There,
1: I, I absolutely agree, and I think, especially when we talk about security, risk management, or intelligence, I think this should be considered a part of part of the, you know, social studies. It is not it is not something that could go to to, to any other direction. But I have also to, to share with you a fun story, um, especially because you you actually touched a lot about, you know, techniques and tools. I want to add, you know, on what you already mentioned, which, by the way, I totally agree, that it's also necessary for people to think outside of the box in, in many cases, because that's what is also missing somehow, you know. Many times people are focusing on scripts, focusing on studies, focusing on on, on the articles that they have read. But in the end of the day, especially um, when we talk about intelligence or security risk management, there's an element that will always be thinking out of the box type of approach. You know, I I was, I'm not going to mention about the year or the specific location, but I I was in Sudan and one of my tasks was to do a mine, a landmine analysis in order to to know where I can send my staff safely in order to, to proceed on operations. And You know, when you talk about that with military people or law enforcement people of of any country, they will never basically clearly demonstrate where landmines are because they are there for a reason and they are there to protect their own selves and the civilians that they try to take care of. So I was in a dilemma. How can I collect, you know, this information? How I can be able to understand approximately where minefields are so to know how far I can set my colleagues or not. So I took with me in the car, uh, you know, um, a military intelligence person. And we started driving around. So, and I had in front of me, you know, a map that basically I I supposed to take notes, you know, on my phone, not the physical map. And, you know, wherever the person was sleeping, I knew that there are no minefields because the person was extremely relaxed, right? When the person was a bit on his edges... I knew that there is something there. I didn't need to know that there are minefields per se. I knew that there is something risky in the area because he was tense. So that was a tool, for instance, I used, you know, from out of, outside of the box thinking in terms of understanding, you know, where are where are the risks for my staff? How far can I go? And, you know, th- these are things that I believe that you cannot learn from the book. You need to learn, you know, from programs like the one... That you have launched, for instance, that people are talking with professionals, that, that you know taking experiences, you know, from from people that in, are in the field and collecting information from from various ways. It's not something that you can read just in a book. I agree.
0: <laughs> I mean, you've you've told me this story before, so it's uh it's an interesting one to look at. A, a military intelligence professional getting nervous when you're reaching to somewhere, you know, where he knows there's something going on. Uh, but not saying it, and just to be like a fly on the wall in that situation, I would have loved uh, to see that. And I, I think perfectly you you lead us into into the next question that I wanted to ask you right now for in your role, what are some of the tools that you that are maybe not a standard or, or are standard that, that you use in your toolkit? To, to make better decisions.
1: I mean what I usually do, you know, as I said in the very beginning of our discussion, I'm extremely curious as a person. And this curiosity led me to find solutions where I don't see anything in place. For instance, one of the things that I did I took knowledge from trainings that I did about, you know, stakeholder management and etc that usually take place in internal terrain, let's say of a company or, or, or of a sector. And I I developed some tools that basically measuring the the perception of particular actors and stakeholders in the context that I'm working. And based on this analysis, I understand what should be my stance towards them. You know, are are those people are people that will influence, let's say, negotiations uh, for a subject that is on my interest? Are are those people, people that basically will, you know, support me um, to, to achieve my objectives? For instance... It was in Yemen, in particularly in uh, Taiz uh, governorate, where we had an incident long time ago, where basically some one of our car been shot by a tribe and been shot by a tribe for for their own reasons. That it, it is not very important. So I, I tried to meet the the governor of this governorate to to make sure that I'm going to take you know, guarantees for the security of, of our operations. And this person wouldn't meet me. Uh, he he wasn't interested um, to, to go to any discussions. He wasn't interested to, to speak with me. So I was thinking, how can I push this person to talk with me if he doesn't want? I don't have any power. I don't have any leverage. So then I, I, I was like, okay, I have the stakeholder analysis tool that I, I created only for this particular reason. Let me understand who are the influence factors for this person. And, you know, when I understood where are those influence on factors, I actually started communicating with them, suggesting that we are going to close programs, impacting, you know, their particular communities. If they don't push put pressure on this particular, you know, governor to be able to meet with me. And, you know, those tools are... are, are Extremely important because actually speaking about the problem, you know, many times I have seen that both in the humanitarian security sector and the private security sector, people are going towards tools that are fancy, going towards tools that others are using just because others are using tools, right? But they don't necessarily speak about the problem. You know, in, in many cases, people are not connecting, for instance, tools with project management or tools with objectives. So one of the tools I'm using, long story short, is stakeholder analysis and stakeholder management. Uh, I'm obviously using tools such as, you know, security risk analysis um, that I have developed myself in order to understand risks and threats from various aspects, including gender and diversity, which is extremely important. But I'm also using, you know, some tools to understand, you know, where is the next, you know, um, crisis that may take place, you know, what, what is what is the top countries in my watch list, let's say my personal watch list in in terms of security risk management. So to know, you know, if I need to focus there more than than other countries that I might be covering.
0: What are the countries that you're you're watching right now?
1: So obviously Gaza is is one of them. Um, And then it's South Sudan and Sudan at the moment. Those are the three countries I see in terms of what is going on. And this is quite easy, if I may say, as a prediction, because both South Sudan and Sudan have produced a lot of risks in 2023. There's a lot of increase of casualties in the humanitarian sector because of those of those countries with, I think, 2023 will have two or three times more casualties than 2022, with a significant increase. And, and then obviously are, you know... Countries that are impacted by climate change that we might see a deterioration of the situation which might be uncontrollable or outside of the spectrum that we are looking at right now. It's it's still South Sudan, you know, and within them. And um, I would also add Syria and, and potentially Afghanistan, but for okay. sure Syria. Okay.
0: If somebody wanted to do what you do, uh, work in a similar role as you, what advice would you give them?
1: Well... I think the best advice I have, because there's no standard approach on this type of things, um, I would actually suggest to find the most difficult country that no one wants to go
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: and apply there. <laughs> I, I know yeah. it sounds funny, <laughs> but, but this, is, yeah. this is how many of the people on the field get um, jobs. You know, Find the country that, that no one wants to go. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter um, what, you, what is your educational background necessarily. As much as matters to find the right opportunity to join in the sector as any other sector, obviously. What else? Well, definitely, you know, those people need to, to, to be and remain curious. If I am successful in what I'm doing today is curiosity. And this drive of curiosity is, is there. And as it seems, doesn't go anywhere for good and bad reasons. But then there are also trainings that, you know, people can do to improve their capacity. You know, one, one of them, and I'm not sure if it sounds like an advertisement, but is, is the CSMP course from ISMI. I think this is one of the best courses for security risk management professionals out there at the moment. Extremely practical and extremely useful for, for everyone. But again, as I said, it, it doesn't really matter what is the background of people who want to, to start in the sector. It matters more to find the the opportunity. You know, small NGOs are usually more keen to hire people that are not very complete as professionals. For instance, students that finished uh, recently, you know, political science or um, security studies or whatever similar, you know, type of um, of studies, and they're more keen to to hire them in in context that there's no one else that wants to go there.
0: All right, and something that that i'm trying to ask everybody in in your current role today what keeps you up is there anything that keeps you up
1: yes so that's a good question i think my concern usually is if i have done enough and i'm saying that because in my view our world is changing and changing fast and at the same time slow i know it's very controversial as a statement but I think we are in a a multi-crisis era of continuing crisis. For instance, see the war in Syria, the war in Yemen, the war in Ukraine right now, which, you know, for many analysts, and I I believe that has started since 2014 and continue until today. You know, crises are not ending. And as crises are are not ending, more crises are coming, you know, let's say on board. And, you know, there is an extreme polarization in the world, you know, at the same time, we have a string of cyber and physical you know, world realms. All of those things are creating, in my view, a very fertile environment for, for increase of crisis, increase of extremes, increase of you know, further incidents around the world. So I don't think necessarily that security professionals, we understand that our world is changing in that pace and in that level. That the systems and that the traditional system that we have explored until today, I, do, I don't think are enough anymore. So that's what keeps me up. I think we are in the edge of changing, but at the same time, we are not there yet. Neither in terms of where the world is going and where the, the you know the society is leading, neither in terms of the system that we have in order to control you know this change.
0: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. That's actually. That's very similar I, I would say to uh, some of the things that that, that keep me up
1: and, and don't forget that next year you know 2024 four billion people will vote in one year this is first time happening in the history so it's a lot of changes a lot of coincidence at the same time so I think 2024 it, it's going to be a very interesting year for for our for our profession not in a good way necessarily yeah yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of uncertainty. So before I go into my my normal last question do you have any questions for me
1: Yeah I, I would be interested to hear your opinion in terms of what keeps you up All right um
0: I think what keeps me up is I look at certain countries that we are that we are working in that we are monitoring for clients or for ourselves and particularly if there is people that we work with that are on the ground what what keeps me up is are they safe and are we putting them in unnecessary risk by asking questions about what's going on there so in 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 a short way is the safety and security of of the people that we work with on the ground that's what keeps me up that we did, we do enough. That we uh, make sure that you know they understand the risks and the duty of care that that we have. That's so. That's something that keeps me up.
1: That's absolutely fair.
0: Any other questions?
1: M- maybe. What, what are the top countries that you are looking right now as well?
0: That's a good question. So, I think for us, obviously the ones that you've already called, but but Sudan is definitely up there. Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso is kind of teetering on an edge of what's going to happen with, you know, with terrorist rebel groups, and then Mali, right next door. So the the, the trifecta of of Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger, I think Niger in a lesser extent, but uh, but definitely Burkina Faso and Mali are up there. So those are the ones that we're looking at. I mean, I think it, it would be fair to say also Taiwan but everybody's looking at that one, so I, I think it's not a unexpected one. What else would I say also? I, I know we have a list of countries that we track, but one, I mean, yeah, and, and uh, high, high on the list is Somalia because there's, there's, there's mutations happening there too that can uh, Somalia and tandem and Kenya, I would say.
1: To be honest with uh, whoever I talk, and when we reach that point of discussion, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it becomes more and more difficult on be able to to say that there are two or three countries that we are looking only. I mean, in the past, yeah. I remember we could record one big crisis every year in one mm-hmm. country.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Now it's multiple. Yes, and with For the, sure. with the pace things are going. It's a domino effect that one crisis may affect more than more than one countries at the same time. So it's it's not necessarily easy to predict, right?
0: No, it's it's extremely difficult. And as you said, you know, the war in Ukraine had far-reaching effects on on the global south, mainly on like food supplies and and
1: and you know the
0: secondary and tertiary effects of that. So.
1: Yeah, and if you add if you add there the climate crisis, right? Yeah, You know, absolutely. UN actually suggested that sixty percent of refugees and internally displaced people are now because of the climate change. Yeah. you know, there were between like 70 million and 100 million displaced people. That you know, those numbers are numbers that we never seen before.
0: No. And what is so crazy about that too is that novel problems novel problems with refugees that we've seen in the past are becoming disasters and one of the very worrying effects that, that, that I'm that I am yeah that, that I'm seeing more and more is, is the weaponization of refugees. Um, we've seen it in the Belarusian uh, Polish border. We're seeing it now in the Russian Finnish border. But there's a potential to see that in, in Gaza and, and Egypt border, or Jordan. So I think this is a very worrying trend to weaponize refugees.
1: Yeah, the, this happened first time in my understanding. You know, in a, I think it was February or March 2020 with uh, the Greek-Turkish borders, where there were you know some thousands of refugees going to the northern Greece for first time in, in, in that extent, with a lot of conflicting reports on in terms of what happened and why that happened. I, I, I totally agree with you. And I want to add there that it's not only the weaponization of, of refugees, it's also, you know, the, the rule of law of so the, the rule of war is not anymore the same. It's also changing. You know, we see Targeting of hospitals, targeting of, of uh, schools, targeting of infrastructure that is critical, you know, for, for civilians. We see that happening in, in Ukraine. We see that happening in you know and speak up the numbers in, in Gaza, we see that happening in Syria, you know it's it is not something that we have seen before. I I don't recall any time in, in, in my career Recording that number of hits of hospitals that, for instance, happen in Gaza right now, or or children that are dying um, in 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 a conflict, for instance, in in Gaza, right now, um, if I if I'm not if I'm not wrong, there are around forty five hundred children that have been killed. While in comparison, for instance, in twenty twenty two, there were three thousand killed in, in in global basis. So the intensity of wars and the intensity of of where the world is going I think it's in numbers that we have never seen in the past absolutely
0: and it's um, it's what's what's even more shocking is the we've been we've become numb to this
1: yeah it is a polarization that we talked earlier as well you know we, we are keen to take sides without necessarily understanding um, what exactly this means
0: mm. absolutely mm. absolutely and it's it's for us, you know, it's one of the things we try is to, we don't report on politics in a in, in sense that we don't wear that on our sleeves, which is, you know, what any good intelligence analyst should do. But as you said, you know, if, if, if the flow of data you're getting is somewhat or somehow corrupted, it's going to be garbage in, garbage out, right? So selecting sources has become a nightmare in itself you know what to trust who to trust and and i think keeping bias out we're pretty good at it but it's it's becoming harder and harder not to make mistakes and i think that's another important thing you know own up to your mistakes and and apologize because i think in in especially online you know guys and girls that report on on, on conflicts, you know, when they make a mistake, they hope that people just forget because of the fast pace as you're saying. The fast pace of changes, that people will forget the mistake I made. But when the dust settles, if the dust settles, hopefully it does, people will remember that you made mistakes and you didn't own up to them. You just left the mistakes to be. And especially if you're very active online, the internet has a long memory and people take screenshots of things you've said so remember that 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 impacts you know the rest of your life and the rest of your career so i think if i can give like a a piece of advice to people listening is that if you make a mistake own up to it you know fix it apologize and move on i mean you don't have to grovel but i think that's important if you don't do that people are just waiting for you to slip up
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the other thing that is also, I think, important to mention, especially for those who are already in uh, the security industry, is that this is also an element to to take into consideration when you do your security analysis, you know, especially the power of social media and and the need to sometimes overanalyze, you know, what stance are you taking, especially in this polarized world that... Nothing is black or white it, it's It's a very complex world that you know a decision cannot necessarily be as good a, a, or as bad as you initially think it's 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 more difficult than ever before you, you know you see companies for instance that are asked to take an um, a side in the war in the war in, in Israel now are facing extreme extremely you know difficult consequences that could potentially even lead them to, to existential threat.
0: Which is I don't think anybody expected that to to be the no, outcome.
1: No, absolutely uh, not.
0: Or, or on that lighthearted note, um <laughs> uh, the last question that 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 I have for you is what are you reading at the moment? What are you listening to? Uh what are you watching? Any cultural recommendations or
1: well to, to be honest with you, it's a very difficult period with a lot of things uh, you know, taking place. But And as I said in the beginning, I cannot focus on one particular thing. So I read yeah. something and then I move towards a different direction. So yeah, sure. What I usually do, I, I read um, usually two books at the same time. I know that this is controversial, but when I feel bored in one side, I go to the other side or somehow I find connections in between the two of them. So this period I'm reading The Rise of Extreme Right from Halil. is a book that has uh, been published in 2022. It's an extremely interesting book. And um, I'm also reading um, uh, The Psychology of Revolutions from Le Bon, which has been published in uh, 1912. Both of them are quite interconnected. And it's, it's quite interesting to see how, especially the the psychology of revolutions, how relevant they are even uh, more than 100 years later. Okay. And
0: any things as escapism that you watch or listen to?
1: Well, I, I listen to um... your podcast from time to time when I have time. <laughs> Thank you. Especially when I'm watching this yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. or, or running, as I said yeah. to you earlier. Yeah. Um, But in in terms of, Watching, I, I don't have time to watch. Usually, I, I prefer to read uh, instead of watch things. Quite interestingly, as we we're talking about uh, James Bond earlier, there is a fun reality show that called Zero Zero Seven. I'm not sure if you have heard that. No, that's not. Put normal day to day people, you know, do extreme things like from the movie of James Bond. For anyone okay. who wants to get in the intelligence sector, I highly advise that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> um, okay. but, uh, but that's what I'm, what, what I'm watching when I have no power to do anything else.
0: Fair enough. All right, that's, that, is, that is interesting. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate uh, you coming on and, and sharing your thoughts. And uh, the time really flew by. I didn't even check it up until like five minutes ago. Um, any closing thoughts from you?
1: No. Firstly, I want to say thank you for hosting me today and uh, I hope that we are on time so you will not need to do a lot of uh, work uh, to edit things to make it be on no. the right timing. <laughs> but as usual, it's a pleasure yeah, to Yeah, we, we've you gotten and, better in it. Okay, that's good. That That's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the... the My closing note, I can say, is that I would like to encourage, especially the young people that have um, doubts in terms of this is a right, you know, um, career for them or not, to think it's uh, less and try it. In the end of the day, nothing bad can happen by joining the sector. But also I want to make a note for um, those who are on the boards and they are not investing on geopolitics or intelligence or security management, that they need to do it ASAP. It's not anymore about managing crisis. It's about the existence or not of their companies. The world is moving fast and moving to a direction that without that they would not be able to continue having what they have. Um, And I'm not saying that in a way to promote for the sector, I'm saying that because that's the reality. And we have seen both companies and humanitarian organizations, you know, getting momentum and going ahead the game, you know, from, from others that have not been invested. So it's extremely important to to actually stress out that as well.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Uh, better. I think just focusing, as you said, on, on, um, on hard security and, and, and crises, uh, through, for example, GSOX is not enough. Um, you have to get into the domain of strategic long-term risks and mapping and, and, and understanding of actors, as you uh, mentioned earlier. I think uh, we that's what we pride ourselves in, in doing Great Dynamics, and, and I think we have a pretty solid track record of doing that well. But um, yeah, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you? if they uh, if they wanted to reach out or ask you questions.
1: I mean, they cannot <laughs> because I'm they e- cannot. in the end of the day. Yeah, that's true. How, however, um, you know, for, for those that are professionals and they are really interested, you know, to, to get in touch with me, um, they Go can, me. I, I, I assume, th- so uh, do it through you, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah. They can uh, they can email uh, podcast at com.
1: Or they can and, uh, watch uh, the 007 movie and uh, pretend yeah. that they know me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there you go. I, thank you so much. And um, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. And for, for people listening, guys, thank you if you made it this far. Uh, thank you for all the support. And there's some updates coming on the school as well as other cool projects we're working on. So stay tuned for that and also for arctic week which is starting in a couple of weeks it's the last week of december so we're doing that uh, for the third year in a row um yeah thank you and uh, see you on the next one